0: Hello, I'm Gabby. Welcome to the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. In the Collins Dictionary, the definition of emotional baggage is the feelings you have about your past and the things that have happened to you which often has a negative effect on your behavior and attitude. Well, I would add it's the unresolved issues that hold us back and dim our light. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could identify and release some, if not all, of that pain and discomfort? Today's guest has helped thousands of clients do just that. Natalie Liu is a writer, speaker, podcaster, artist, and founder of one of the longest-running self-help blogs in the world, Baggage Reclaim. Natalie has spent years helping people pleasers, perfectionists, overthinkers, low self-esteemers, and relationship strugglers overcome their emotional baggage and break free from their patterns and negative thought behaviours to reclaim the life they truly deserve. In this conversation, we're going to learn about how to uncover and unpick the cluttered crap from our past that no longer serves us. We're also going to find out how to identify if our needs are being met by our loved ones and why we need to recognise our values and self-worth in order to stop people-pleasing and constantly putting others first to the detriment of our own health. Sometimes we are aware of the past traumas and negative experiences, but other times we are lugging around a bunch of unnecessary weights that we can accumulate and accumulate from as early as infancy. During our conversation, Natalie shares some of the symptoms that can manifest physically as well as mentally and emotionally to look out for. She also discusses why getting into relationships with emotionally unavailable people is to be avoided at all costs. She also talks about the importance of preference, not programming, and the joy of saying no. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome to the Happier Life Project, Natalie. And I'll try and get all your accolades across. You're a writer, podcaster, speaker, course creator, four books uh, under your belt and another one just released. So that's five books. And for almost 20 years, you've been helping individuals to manage their self-esteem and relationships in professional as well as personal spaces. You've been very, very busy and you've helped a lot of people, (laughs) first
1: of all. I have been busy.
0: I look back and when you say almost 20 years, I go,
1: Jesus, yeah, I have been on for almost 20 years, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I always like when I'm doing my research and I'm either pulling things from your content or from other, you know, interviews and stuff, and there's just, I mean, there's just so much. And I have to look at my notes to to read the next bit. You inspire, empower, and guide your clients to overcome their past so they can raise their self-worth, figure out why so often – Uh, are attracted to emotionally unavailable partners and break depleting habits like people-pleasing, poor boundaries, being self-critical or unfulfilling relationships. So basically you help people get to the crux of their emotional baggage and and help them work through it, I suppose, and and to, to get rid of some of it, I would assume.
1: Yeah, unpack,
0: declutter, tidy up, you know, but you're, you're sort of <laughs> right. processing
1: that so that you can reclaim yourself because we can only, I know as humans, we like to think we can just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and that we can just go all the way through life having all of these experiences, all these emotional, mental, physical, spiritual responses to stuff, and that we can just accumulate it and we'll just continue on. It, we can only carry mm. so much. So we do have to know what to let go of or we have to adjust the way that we're carrying certain things you know I liken it to if you have because remember when I I don't have one of these but I grew up with my mom having like a linen closet in a hallway and Hmm. you know when it's stuffed full of stuff and it's not uh, tidied up it just looks like you can't fit anything else in it but then when you get rid of some stuff out of there and you fold up the other stuff and you have sort of a neat and organization suddenly you have room and it is a similar thing with Emotional baggage, in the sense that we're carrying, you know, these old stories, judgments, criticisms, old feelings, you know, emotional mm-hmm. charge about past experiences, that influence the way that we think, feel, and behave today, that mm. are influencing the way that we choose. And because we don't know about this, we haven't been raised where, you know, for, for if we're an adult now, we probably haven't been taught to about self care. And boundaries yeah. and feelings and needs You know, if I turn around mm. and I was like I'm feeling it doesn't certainly be like What are you talking about? Get outside and play and stop messing around You know, I'll give you something yeah. to cry about you know, type Right of
0: thing. For the millennials and onwards, for sure we, we just, we weren't really encouraged to speak about our feelings, were we? No, not at all Like my children's generation
1: Like they are totally different to us That doesn't mean that they don't have their struggles Because by goodness, you know, teens now so much anxiety, you know, there's so much stress, and so, so many different things that they, well, not different, but so many things that they are also dealing with. But mm. in amongst that, they're dealing with this stuff, aware that there is such a thing as boundaries and self-care. They know about the term anxiety. Like, that's <laughs> thats not right. something that came into my vocabulary until well into adulthood. Yeah. That they yeah. understand about the body and stress. We were not taught about this stuff. like nobody taught us about values. first time I heard people talking about that stuff in a more intentional, this is about who you are as a person and 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 you know, having a sense of what your morals are or what you want to do in life, as opposed to these are values in terms of church or you know following rules at school. I didn't know about that stuff until well into adulthood.
0: Going through your material, for sure, there was a lot of aha moments, but just kind of going with this, I guess, the analogy of like stuff and, and cluttering, I thought it was really interesting. I learned recently that in feng shui, in terms of sorting out your physical belongings in a house and decluttering your house, your house is a direct reflection of you on the inside. And I thought that was so interesting and kind of applied here as well. Where I mean some people do have a messy house and we're not and it's okay to have a messy house and have stuff. But then there's also when it looks like a TV show when they go in and you know there's stuff everywhere <laughs> and it's the world's worst hoarders, those kind of TV yeah. shows. But yeah, actually on the inside, I think for a lot of us we are the world's worst hoarders, but we just don't know it. Sure absolutely oh
1: my gosh like you totally nailed it because we we carry on as if we have like an attic and a basement and like a living room and a few bedrooms and the kid like in our bodies like all these so it's like oh these things that I don't want to think about anymore or that I feel angry about or whatever I'll just shove those like like in the garage the basement you know I'll shove it on an external hard drive there is no external hard drive there is no basement there's no attic it's just one, anything that I guess that we might deem as bad feelings, you know, the the difficult stories that we're carrying, the judgments, it's all in the same place as the good stuff. And of course, if you're carrying a lot, it's going to encroach on any good feelings, good experiences as well, because there's only so, so much we can carry. A hundred percent is a hundred percent. It's not going to mm-hmm suddenly expand into something else we can't buy an external hard drive and and plug it into <laughs> yeah. ourselves and start to disperse the extra stuff that we don't want to that we don't want to yeah. deal with and
0: and so we have to start looking at ourselves and so is that how everything started for you it was sort of you'd acquired too much stuff and then you started to look at it because it was not good for you basically physically mentally emotionally and that's how You know, the blog started and and you went from there because you honestly, Natalie, your way with words is so it's so profound and your voice comes through and it's so relatable as well. And I'm like, was she like Buddha where one day she just meditated for like 12 hours and then this higher power just like gave her all this knowledge about emotional baggage and people pleasing and all of this stuff. I'd love to know how it all began for you. So for me, I had grown up with this attitude
1: that you don't talk about stuff. Um, you know, I come from a, you know, Jamaican uh, family on both sides. One side is Jamaican Chinese. The other has Jamaican Jewish Spanish background on both sides. Talking about stuff, not the done thing. And then when you mix in being in English culture, which, you know, stiff up a lip, you know, yeah. polite, mm-hmm, yeah. polite front. And then in Irish culture as well you know where because I grew up in Ireland it was just the sense of the ways that I'm feeling about myself or about what I'm seeing going on is wrong and when I tell the truth as I see it if I talk I get into trouble for that and what I also found myself doing was having this attitude of do you know what if something really bothers me or upsets me I will just stuff it away and I just won't as such, look at it or think about it until it's further down the line because it won't bother me. So a prime example of where I did that was with romantic relationships, where I would just bounce from relationship to relationship and the idea was that if I just stuffed it away, by the time I thought about it again or allowed myself to think about it again, I'd probably already be involved in something else or I'd feel like, well, I probably don't care so much about it now. So I never really dealt with anything. And what that resulted in was a catalogue of unhealthy, uh, unfulfilling relationships with emotionally unavailable and yes, shady. So I experienced some abusive relationships as well. I also, I overworked. I overdid it in friendships. I struggled with my family in terms of setting boundaries. I didn't like myself. And then my health really started to nosedive. I had various different mystery Ailments over a several year period. And actually, I can recall even being a bit like that as as a child as well, having ears, nose, and throat. I'd undergone a serious operation as a kid. I had chickenpox for two and a half months. And when actually, when I look back at what was going on in my life at the time, I can see how that also sort of correlated with big emotional stresses, big emotional Mm -hmm. appeals. And then when I had this immune system disease, sarcoidosis, which was sort of from when I would think it was sort of 25, 26 through to sort of 28 or so, I was constantly burying, never dealing with anything. Everything was, well, I'm not good enough. I'm worthless and good for nothing. Messages that I'd heard as a child internalized. And then when my health really started to nosedive and they were like, well, you know, if you don't go on steroids for life, you're basically going to be dead by the time you're 40. It was a real sort of, ooh, wake-up call in the sense of like where have I been all of my life I've been so caught up in everything and everyone else yet I've got somebody Mm -hmm. here basically saying to me you have to go on this medication otherwise you're basically not going to be you're not going to be around and suddenly I thought to myself oh but I want to be able to like dance because obviously he was talking about like mobility and stuff like that I was like I want to be able to dance I want to be able to travel I do actually as scary and as As out of reach as it seems, I want to be able to maybe be in a loving relationship one day and maybe have kids. And suddenly I was like, what the hell have you been doing with your life? I was focused on everything and everyone else. And it was talking out loud about some of what I was experiencing on my then personal blog. Because I had like a blog that I started like in 2004. That's how I started out. It was called tired of men and other things that drive a 20 something around the twist and it was me just (laughs) (laughs) telling stories about my crappy love life um and living in London and commuting because I I had moved over from Ireland like I think maybe a couple of years or so before that and so I was telling these stories and when I spoke out loud and said oh this is what I'm going through and this is what I've just you know started to sort of realize people were like oh you're talking about me like you're you're just like me and I was kind of like well that's kind of a bit weird because I've always thought that I'm weird and unlovable and very different to everyone else and but all these people are saying I feel just the way that you do I have the crappy relationships just the way that you do I don't love myself I'm always looking for love in the wrong places I overwork and all this stuff and that really awakened something in me. And I was asked this question of like, would you blame uh, a child, a, a two and a half year old for their parents' breakup? And I was like, gosh, no. And she goes, you do realize that that is what you've been doing with yourself for like your entire life. And that was like a, a world shifting on its axis moment mm. for me, mm. where suddenly once I acknowledged this <laughs> rather large grain of truth, I was like, oh, if that's not true what have you just based your entire life around i look back and i realized i experienced an awakening of sorts that mm-hmm. that summer mm-hmm. where I, basically you know like when you 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 can't unsee something and it sets off a, a sort of a chain yeah. reaction and and i realized i wanted to fight for myself i realized i want to be here and i don't want to be in these situations anymore and that I, I had to really take a compassionate look at what was going on with me because we're often afraid to look at this stuff. And it's not even, you know, we're often thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be so deep and it's probably going to take about 100 years for me for me to look at that stuff. But actually, yeah. when you acknowledge one thing, because of how our brains work, it has a, a knock-on effect. Because if if one thing is true and, you, and you've changed your narrative around that, then suddenly other things that you've built your life and your story around suddenly can't be true anymore. Because if two-and-a-half-year-old me was not responsible for my parents breaking up and wasn't responsible for how they treated me or didn't treat me you know, neglect and, yeah, sometimes experiencing abuse and stuff, if I'm not responsible for that, then all of a sudden it's like, well, hold on a second. Why are you accepting shady behavior from partners? Mm. Mm. Doesn't this mean that actually you are worthy of more than you've allowed yourself to be? Doesn't this mean that there are other options for you? Because you know, if I can have a hand in my own misery, and I look back and oh my gosh, I mean the things I used to get up to in romantic relationships, I think to myself, you do wonder if you were smoking crack. You know, sort of <laughs> <back there. laughs> it's, it's like wow, like yeah, it's, it, I seem like an entirely different person, even though I know I'm a, I'm the same person, and. Mm. You, you look at that and you go, well, hold on. If I can have a hand in my in my own misery, then surely I can have a hand in my own happiness.
0: Yeah. In terms then of like from the the awakening, and I think more people now, because of resources like yourself, maybe people are more aware than they were, and the internet has helped a lot with that too. But then in terms of being like, okay, yeah, I know this, but then letting go of it so that I can go on to grow and flourish and not be Mm -hmm. sort of constantly like dragged back to two and a half year old me or seven year old me. Like that's where you have to put in the work. And how did you go about even knowing what work to do? (laughs) <laughs> That's a
1: great question, because it, it's funny. It would be easy for me to think that the first time I had ever sort of really looked at trying to do any uh, self-work, as, as we like to call it, would have been around mm. this time, 17 years ago. But when I look, I still have a lot of the self-help books that I had clearly gravitated to from sort of my late teens. That all these self-help books that I had tried to find answers in and soon abandoned. You know, you go mm. and back then you had <laughs> more and just 17 and all those types of magazines that was like <laughs> yes 50 ways to please your man position of the fortnight, yes. put on yes. sexy lingerie light a candle make him dinner you know that was the answer to all of life's certainly all of any romantic issue was that type of thing and a big shift for me happened because there, there is this sense of oh god, like I need to make some changes. What am I going to do? And at the time, I was had started seeing a um, kinesiologist, which is she like muscle testing, and they're working sort of with balancing your body. And so she had identified intolerances. She was the one who pointed out about you know where I was carrying a lot of blame and shame and anger, and she mentioned mm. like boundaries in a conversation, and I was like boundaries. I'd heard, I kind of, I'd sort of heard it, but not, never really kind of been like, mm. and it was literally trial and error. There was no, I didn't go and off and read some books. She said to me, I can sit here and say to you, right, you need to be careful about eating these particular foods. You need to drink like lots of water, you know, to sort of flush, you know, through you know, any toxins and stuff like that, you know, to help your body to sort of rebalance and hydrate. And I can say to you about this boundaries, but if you go off and you basically try to live your life how you have been, it doesn't matter what you eat or what you're doing, you're still going to be mm-hmm. in that same place. And so I found that I became very observational because I suddenly was like, oh where would I have an opportunity to just be clearer about who I am or what does, or does not work for me? And so I remember being with my mom, I think one day, and she was going on and on about something. And I suddenly noticed that my whole body had gone really tense. And I was like, mom, I, I need you to stop. And she was like, what? I was like, mama, I, I need you to stop. And she was like, oh, uh, okay. And it was little things, but big things like that, they seem little in that moment, but actually big things like that, where I found myself drawing a line, like another example, I used to, go, at the time I was working in advertising and so you have client lunches. And I remember it was only like a couple of weeks after that first session with a kinesiologist and I wasn't supposed to be eating certain things and something had arrived. And it, I don't even know if it was necessarily on the list, but I started to become really itchy. It was like mm. this spinachy thing it was really like full of dairy and I've become increasingly sensitive to dairy over the years anyway so I'm sitting there and I go oh god am I gonna eat this thing like with these and I, and I could just tell something was wrong and then I was like no you're not gonna eat that so I didn't eat that and it was they seem like such small decisions but these are metaphors for how much we are meeting our needs and how much we value ourselves. So something I say to people is, we often make this boundaries thing like super complicated. We often make this Mm -hmm. meeting our needs thing super complicated. But simply, (laughs) if you pay attention to, do you hold weeds? Do you skip meals? Do you delay Mm -hmm. sleep? Do you work really long hours? These are metaphors for how you feel about your needs. And when I say Mm -hmm. this to people, suddenly, a lot of things start to click into place because how you do one thing is how you do other things. And so when you, for instance, sit there holding a wee, trying to just keep working, 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 and then you suddenly stand up and say, oh my God, if I don't literally sprint right now to the bathroom, I'm not going to make it. That is because you are delaying meeting a very basic need there. You're deprioritizing yourself. How we do one thing is, is how we do other things. And so these are metaphors for how much we prioritize ourselves mm-hmm. you know essentially mm-hmm. when we're holding a wee we're going my boss or the computer or social media or money or whatever it is is a greater priority than the very basic of of needs we're skipping and delaying ourselves you know, you skip a meal you're skipping yourself you are you know you're delaying yeah. sleep you're, you're shrinking that down you're del- you know you're skipping over rest it's all messages to the self about how much you are valuing yourself prioritizing yourself in that Mm. moment
0: to kind of taking that thread and running with it when we're talking about emotional needs and Mm. say we're carrying pain and fear or guilt shame things from the past Mm -hmm. we might not again like we talked about we might not know that we're kind of carrying it around it's just we feel heavy we feel sad Mm -hmm. we feel irritable and maybe that's because as kids we couldn't articulate our emotions or we were taught not to we have been holding on to these emotional we's for a very long (laughs) time (laughs) and then you know the key is to release right Mm -hmm. what are the sorts of symptoms if we don't address this like I mean you mentioned some of personally what you went through Mm -hmm. um in terms of it manifesting in physical symptoms Mm -hmm. as well as the obviously emotional and mental but like what what do you think are kind of common signs that people are holding on to some real emotional crap (laughs) that they need to let go of
1: (laughs) well you find that when you're suppressing and repressing yourself you know your needs desires expectations feelings and opinions that seeps out in passive aggressive behavior Where you are saying one thing and doing another. You've got a smile on your face, but you're acting out with this sort of obstructionist and resistant behavior. It's that whole thing of, oh, yeah, like I'm fine. But you're just snapping and you're being distant. And instead of before where you would be very quick to respond to, for instance, a message from this person because you're quietly steaming underneath you're like well, i'm gonna take half a day or a whole day to respond now this mm. kind of thing is uh, these are notifications that we're feeling some kind of way about something and passive aggression actually which is something all humans are guilty uh-huh. of you know all mm. humans are guilty of being passive aggressive at times it is simply that whole thing of you know where we say that we're okay when we're not and then we we voice the unokayness in some other way so actually we're all guilty of gaslighting on an occasion where you know because we don't want to confront something when a person asks us what's wrong we say there's nothing so we let that person believe that it's in their imagination what they have been observing in us that what they've mm. been experiencing from us so we can all be guilty of gaslighting in instances obviously there is That type of gaslighting, well, it's all gaslighting, but there can obviously be that very persistent, coercive, manipulative gaslighting that also takes place in abusive relationships. I think Mm -hmm. as well that we humans are designed to feel. We're not designed to suppress and repress. So aside from it playing out as, you know, when we're really backed up emotionally, then we are going to, for instance, start to feel, well, we end up feeling numb or even dead. Inside and then sometimes then and in fact often what happens is in order to feel alive at times to sort of have that escapism we start doing what can become some pretty destructive and toxic stuff to kind of escape ourselves and feel a temporary high from that so that's how you can start to get into you know a a compulsive behavior and so it could be you're over exercising you're overeating you're consuming too much alcohol you're doing drugs like these things are symptomatic of where we have stopped feeling or we're just not feeling enough we are lying to ourselves about something not because we're sitting there going i want to lie to myself because how can you know what you're feeling when as humans we've been socialized and conditioned to be disconnected from our bodies if we've been told Mm. If you say I'm feeling such and such a way and they turn around and say you're being rude, you're being disobedient, then of course you're going to not know how you feel, you know, what you're feeling because you've not been allowed to have the vocabulary for that. Burnout. Burnout is a classic symptom of unfelt feelings. Outbursts. So, you know, I call it imploding and exploding because that's like, you know, you know, pressure cookers. And, yeah. And so after a while, it's going to explode. If you left that on the hob, it would just boom. And we're like yeah. that as humans as well. So we can implode, which is where we just explode internally. So that becomes like a breakdown, for instance, feeling low, um, where we're just, we don't maybe even know what on earth is up with us. We just know everything just seems to be just going, mm-hmm. you know, to pass. But it can be exploding where actually other people are experiencing from from us as well. We're lashing out. It feels like the slightest thing and we could pop off at any moment.
0: Yeah, it's misdirected, right? It's like usually over something small, but it's not the root of why. Yeah, feeling tipped over the edge. you
1: Mm. You know, it's also a good way of knowing whether you are feeling your feelings that maybe you're stuffing a lot down is if there's a lot that's going on chatter wise in the head Mm. where you're like how are they asking me to do that again don't people realize i've got so much going on oh people just but and or you're criticizing yourself these are as humans being self-critical and yes sometimes judgmental of others is part of the human experience but actually when you notice that you're doing that a lot there's something that you're not allowing yourself to feel because it almost feels impermissible to allow yourself to feel that. And that's how we end up stewing, you know, I call these the people pleaser feelings, anxiety, resentment, guilt, overwhelm, feeling overloaded, helplessness, powerlessness, feeling low. These are all the people pleaser feelings because Mm. they are signs that, and actually not just, I mean, people pleaser feelings covers it all, but if you even shift that term to these are also emotional notifications that you're over your boundaries in some way that you're not taking care of yourself, that you're not being honest with yourself and potentially with others. This is how, you know, and Mm. there can literally be a sense of almost feeling backed up in yourself. Like it's not possible to not feel your feelings and not have Distance from people like the two things don't go together you know so
0: yes, there's yeah. a lack
1: of intimacy like you're, you're there mm. but you're not there or you mm. let a little bit of yourself be seen but you're not it's mm-hmm. the, the avoiding conflict avoiding criticism terrified of rejection
0: yeah you are really striking some chords with me <laughs> here Natalie. I'm sure a lot of other people as well some in fact when you said about the dead inside, I've used that as a joke before when I've gone through shall we say dry spells you know and I've said it flippantly oh i'm 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 just i'm you know I must be dead inside because I'm not kind of interested in any you know i'm straight female, so you know any guys yeah in terms of romantic partners because you do a lot of work in in this area Mm. and it gets used a lot this phrase oh they're emotionally unavailable Mm. almost to the point of flippantly i i feel but uh some sometimes or that it's like if we're going for an emotional available man he's brooding he's mysterious you know (laughs) where actually it's like no it's horrible yeah and yet Are we holding up a mirror in front of ourselves? Because I think about how I tend to fall into this trap with the emotional unavailable person who's very charming and charismatic, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, is completely emotionally unavailable. And is that, am I attracting back at myself what I am?
1: (laughs) Well, it's more that water seeks its own level. I can't remember where I heard that saying, probably the best part of two decades ago, but, You know, it's so apt for talking about emotional unavailability, where if you go out, for instance, with somebody, and this is a very overused term, um, I found particularly over the last decade, you know, we're very quick to diagnose people as being a narcissist or a sociopath, you know, aside from calling people emotionally unavailable, which to be fair, a lot of humans are, because we've been socialized Mm. to be emotionally unavailable, to be fair, but For instance, being involved with a narcissist does not mean, oh, I am a narcissist too. But the reason, for instance, why we would be a match with a narcissist is because we can have this inverted narcissism where it's like on some level we're going, I'm not good enough. We're looking for somebody to kind of breeze into our life, sweep us up, make us feel worthy. Narcissists, they kind of have you on a high So it's like they breeze in, they build you up, then they start breaking you down because obviously they don't want you to get too close to see what they're like. And then we take it personally, which is just perfect, you know, for a narcissist, because obviously they don't have to take responsibility for themselves. I hear from a lot of people who they say to themselves, oh, this person who they literally met like a wet minute ago, oh, like they're just so emotionally available. And I'm going, let me stop you right there how would on earth would you know that somebody that you just met on Tinder, Hinge, wherever, bar, whatever, how would you know based on one conversation or a few conversations that that they're emotionally available? Like that takes time and intimacy. So you need experience with that person. And what you find is I will have somebody say to me, you know, just don't get it. This person blows hot and cold. They're so ambiguous with me. I just don't get it. Like, all I want to do is be in a relationship. I've done everything for them. And I say, to them, there's no such thing as a one sided, ambiguous relationship. Because if you are not an ambiguous person and you're involved with somebody who is behaving in an ambiguous way, then you're not going to be comfortable being ambiguous about that. Mm-hmm. You'll call it because it's not the natural state of play for you to be ambiguous. So you'd be like, hey, you know, I thought that we were blah, 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 but you seem like you're kind of not in that place. You know, you feel like you might be, you know, there's a bit of back and forth here. You said this, you did that. You'd be unambiguous about that. People will go, but, I, you know, I've said how I feel about it. And then you dig in and you go, so you've told this person, this is what you need out of a relationship. Oh, well, God, no. Like, there's no way I would turn around yeah. and yeah Dating and relation, you know, romantic relationships, we have been socialized and conditioned into a pretty messy idea of what these involve. And in essence, we have picked up some ideas that romantic relationships are basically about pretending to be something you're not, or trying to present yourself as being the most attractive person possible, i.e. what we think the other person wants, so that the person will pick us And they will want to then be in a relationship with us and then marry us and live with us happily ever after. The problem with that is that that mentality means that we are going into it already in this people pleasing mode of trying to be what we think that person wants or what we think society has told us makes a good prospective partner. And already then we are being ambiguous about who we are. We can't be... You can't be pretending to be something that you're not. You can't be trying to get this person to pick you and also Mm -hmm. be yourself at the same time. The two things Mm -hmm. don't go together. And in a lot of romantic relationships, you know, I come across a lot of people who, when it comes to their friendships, family, work, actually, they have some pretty good relationships going on there. When you find out who they are getting involved with romantically, you're like, it could be an entirely different person, but it's like they just go into this totally different mode. Like I'll hear from people who they would be like running this massive company known as being like hyper successful. They've got their friends, they got the family. They are going out with these people who are like sc- scamming them, you know, mm-hmm. abusing them in some way don't know, one day they want to be in a relationship, the other day they don't. Complete contrast.
0: Breadcrumbs. Yeah, totally. Giving the breadcrumbs, yeah. Yeah. Drip, drip, drip. Mm. And it's
1: this whole pretending to be something that you're not hiding your needs. A lot of people don't realize that just as a standard in how they are in life, their default is to play down their needs or to act as if they don't have any needs at all. And this is how you can wind up being involved with emotionally unavailable people.
0: And then does this go back to the, the baggage that we're holding on to from, from our upbringing and the mother figure, father figure, caregivers, yeah. those in authority that helped to raise us? Absolutely,
1: because at the end of the day, it's all interconnected. Needs, desires, expectations, feelings and opinions. Every last thing that humans do is about in some way, shape or form trying to meet needs. And that is only going to stop after we've taken our last breath. So mm. uh, Everything we do, we're meeting survival needs, we're sometimes meeting needs for status, for our sense of purpose, for intimacy, for attention, affection. Some of the ways that we go about doing this is healthy and supportive. And other ways that we go about doing these things is mm-hmm. not so much. And actually what I find with people who have a pattern of being involved with emotionally unavailable people is that they are often looking at for time and time again there's an exercise I do with people that is around trying to find out what needs are driving you and they will often say, oh I need like the love care trust and respect I I need intimacy when they do this exercise, people who have a passion have been involved with mostly unavailable people time and time again I've seen it now, they are looking for acknowledgment, recognition, validation. sometimes there is a pursuit of status, or power of some sort and accomplishment is another thing but they time and time and time again it would literally mm. be in the this 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 cluster of needs would be either in first or second place sometimes uh Duty and control are, are the other one as well where it's not that they don't want to be in a loving relationship but when they look at what actually drives them a need to be in control a need to look a certain way a need to listen to me acknowledge me recognize me that stuff is coming from our past and that is then seeping its way into not just our romantic relationships oh my gosh I've heard from so many people who that plays out where they're turning their boss or their co-worker into their mom or their sibling or whoever it is or their friendships are are really like for where it feels like the friend trying to tries to be like a parent or like a romantic it's our unmet needs from the past, specifically childhood, that we feel we're not met by parents and caregivers, mm. then become these hot touch points that we're mm. then trying to fill via romantic relationships, through money, through work, through sex,
0: through food, through drink. And it can get messy. Mm. And so getting to, we're getting to the root of it in terms of like starting the healing process. I can't remember who said it to me, but it stuck with me. I suppose this could apply to any kind of relationship, but I think this was particularly when it comes to romantic ones. How can I expect to have a deep connection with anyone when I don't have a deep connection with myself? Yeah. And so is that where we need to start from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not in this. I'm not somebody who goes around saying you can't have any good relationships in your life until you love yourself because there's a lot of that around and it starts to kind of people end up internalizing that as a level of oh one blame like it's because i haven't loved myself enough that's why my whole life is not the way that i want it to be we don't have to love ourselves perfectly but we do have to start getting into a relationship, a dialogue with ourselves where we are allowing us to feel, we're allowing us to be aware of ourselves and starting to get more of a sense of what we need, desire, expect, feel and think. Because a lot of what we think is us is stuff that we've internalized at like the programming that you mentioned earlier. Like I hear from a lot of people who go, I thought that I wanted all of this stuff that I've pursued, And actually, I realized that because of how I was raised, I was programmed to Mm -hmm. basically believe that once I'm a woman who turns 30, that I should be wanting to be in a relationship and I should be wanting to be in a certain place in my career and I should now be looking to be married and now be looking to have kids. That is fine if that is also what you want, but it has to be preference, Mm -hmm. not programming. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't necessarily understand why we're doing what we're doing. And a place that I, I encourage people to start from, and it can fit people will be like, oh, even just about this. It's like start with asking yourself at the start of the day, for instance, and sometimes even at the end of the day, how, how am I doing today? Because you're mm. then connecting in with you. And you might be surprised at what you hear because often we are going so fast and we have got so many things in our life that are designed really to help us to avoid being too close to ourselves that we have no clue how we feel. And if we're checking in with us, and even if at first we're going, I don't really know how I feel. That's an answer. You don't know how you feel. That's a lot of data in and of itself. It's like, I don't know how I feel. No judgments. We don't have to judge ourselves for that. We've traveled a journey to this point. If we don't know how we feel, we have good reason for why we are in that place. But getting into that habit of asking, how am I doing? today is a check-in because when you're not doing that and you're out of touch with how you feel so you can't name how you feel or you're not aware of why you do the things you do in the way that you do them for as long as you've done them you'll find that you get caught off guard because I don't know something happens today you don't basically face it acknowledge it whatever something happens tomorrow something happens day after day after next thing you're having a meltdown next Tuesday and you're lashing out at somebody, or you're having a go at yourself, or I don't know, you call up your ex, or whatever it is. And actually, <laughs> if you retrace your steps, it comes back to there's been this gradual sort of boiling point. Whereas if you start to keep in touch with yourself, you start to notice patterns. You start to be like, oh, I thought I was feeling that, but actually, it's something like this. Like you can have your own descriptor on it. You know, you might just be like, I I don't know, I'm kind of feeling a bit kind of out there and not really aware of my body right now. That's a good enough descriptor. Like it doesn't have to be dictionary description. That's a good place Mm -hmm. to start. And also, you know, a lot of people are nervous of journaling. You know, journaling can literally be writing one sentence if you want to. It can be jotting today. I felt this, this. Okay, where were you? What were you doing? Who were you around? Even those little notes. A couple of weeks, you have a hell of a lot of data on what Mm -hmm. is actually going on in your life. Like I say to people, even in the space of a week, you do that most of that week, you will start to notice the same people get on your nerves. And actually that sometimes you have literally the same feeling or the same frustration at the exact same time of day in the exact same place as well. We're funny creatures, we humans.
0: Mm. The Joy of Saying No, which is the latest book. So this is a simple plan to stop people pleasing, reclaim boundaries and say yes to the life you want. And you've talked a little bit about people pleasing and and boundaries, because this is actually a bigger topic than you might necessarily think off the get go. Was this kind of like, did you have to keep coming back to this stuff? And you were like, you know what, there's a book I need to to write here.
1: Yeah, I think it was this realization that pretty much anything that's gone on in my life over the last 17 years and of course it probably was before that but specifically this last 17 years any challenge and and the good things that have also come along in life have come about from knowing when to say no like saying no when i need want to and should but also learning from those times where i didn't say no with the benefit of hindsight i go oh geez i definitely Mm. you know should have said no in that instance and A lot of people have a complicated relationship with no. They see it as a dirty word. Whereas no and yes are two sides of the same coin. When you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. When you're saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And if you're not saying no when you need, want to, and should, then your yes is inauthentic. You're just telling lies. You're telling people what you think Mm -hmm. they want to hear. You're saying yes, not because that's actually what you want to say, but because you haven't even bothered to consider yourself or because you're afraid of what would happen if you didn't say yes. And so uh, in realizing that everything in life is about boundaries. And when I realized that, wow, learning how to say no is the gateway to ourselves, to more fulfilling relationships, to having better careers, just having a better life, a more joyful life all around, to reclaiming ourselves, All of the BS that we've internalized, you know, growing Mm. up, but also in adulthood as well. No is is the way through, rather than it being this horrible thing that we think is going to cause everybody to abandon us, you know, that is going to cause the whole world to collapse around us, you know, the skies to fall down. Actually, it's the path to us. It's the path Mm. to joy. It's the path to better relationships. If you're not saying no you don't have intimacy in your close relationships because
0: you don't have an honest relationship. If you're not saying no, you're, you're being dishonest. I love the line you said, if you don't say yes authentically, you say resentfully, faithfully or avoidantly. And that's that's so true. But why do you think so many of us do agree to do something even though it's sacrificing our own health and sanity so not to upset or offend others? Does it come back to the people pleasing?
1: Yeah, we we are we are socialized and conditioned to be compliant. You know, I say that we, if you're not a child right now, then you grew up during the age of obedience, where the communicating with discipline, you know, managing of children was all about making children, you know, excessively compliant, making sure that they were obedient, and as a result, we have lost touch with our no and we think that yes is the same as complying <laughs> which it's not you're just going along with something and so a lot of the time we are saying yes you know resentfully fearfully and avoidantly because i actually said it automatically we didn't even pause for breath before we said yes. that like that's what it's like for a lot of people they say yes first and then afterwards go oh my gosh like what on earth have i done uh, other times it's because Again, it, yes, we've, we've internalized these messages, but we're so afraid of saying no because we think that no causes problems. So we think that the person is going to reject us, criticize us, you know, get into an argument with us, leave us because we've learned that no hurts feelings. And we think that yes is the way to an easy life. And it's like, yeah, and then we can passive aggressively try to find our way out of the yes behind the scenes. So we yeah. it is about our complicated messages around no and boundaries because if if you think about, you know, I have been many a situation as a child where it's hug auntie who's not an auntie or uncle, hug them, give them a kiss, go and sit by, yeah. go sit on their lap. This is a classic example of how we lose our no and become afraid of expressing it because we are pushed into going against ourselves. We lose our instincts. You know, we're told to do stuff and we know that something doesn't feel right. But we're then like, well, this big ass grown up is telling me to do it. So I have to obey. And we do that like, even just a handful of times and it just becomes the way of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was a proper tomboy when I was a kid and I always remember going on holiday with with my gran and um, she wanted me to put on a pretty dress for dinner. And I just didn't want to. I was just it made me not feel comfortable in my own skin. So I wasn't allowed dinner. So I had to stay in the hotel. Yeah, so I wasn't allowed to come down for dinner. I had to stay in the hotel room. So I retaliated and ate all the chocolate that we were going to bring home on (laughs) (laughs) duty-free. But I love that. Love it. (laughs) But I look back on that and think, that was so not right. That was so uncool. And my gran was great, but that was really, you know, she was a bit of a a stickler. She was, yeah, she was never wrong. She was always right. Our parents and
1: grandparents' generation and and beyond that are very, they're the they don't apologise generation.
0: Yeah, by the idea of
1: apologizing <laughs> to a child, gosh, heaven forbid that you'd ever acknowledge that you did something wrong, you know, or or that that just that you were you made a mistake. Uh, they don't apologize, and, and they don't apologize whether you were a kid or as an adult now. Don't apologize, don't acknowledge, and you know that they. They could have very very strong ideas about stuff like it's funny when you mentioned that i remembered that sometimes when i feel like somebody is trying to like oh you should wear that i literally get a tight sensation in my stomach and that's because also like you when i was a kid i would told told no, no no go and put that thing on because da, 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 that will make this person happy and i would hate that mm. absolutely you can't wear this you're not allowed to wear that why are you wearing this and so i clearly have these associations with control you know, around dress, And then you almost want to rebel And lash out and sort of resist
0: Yeah, yeah It's fascinating when you dive into it So I think we best promote to How you can dive into it uh, <laughs> The book's available um, Certainly on Amazon That's the usual place now, isn't it? To be fair, where people consume books For more on you It's baggagereclaim.co.uk You've got loads of courses on there I've signed up for the Break the Cycle Six-week course I mean, week yeah. one <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah i'm glad that you do release one a week because there's a lot of work to go through in each each session for sure instagram you're at NatLou. podcast is the baggage reclaim sessions also cannot recommend enough people checking that out for more on you because you know i've not even asked you half of my questions but <laughs> that's life <laughs> oh
1: i mean it was i could talk to you all day i thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you thank you so much for having me gabby
0: well, likewise. Thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh. oh, Natalie, such a brilliant lady. Thank you so much again for our conversation. And thank you to you for making it through to the end of another episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. And now for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, There is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download so no need to worry about it costing you anything. If you found this episode helpful and you've got the time, we'd love it if you would subscribe and leave a review. And to find and follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. So please do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.